projector starts, and so begins this episode of Movie Nights and Matinees, a podcast for people who enjoy movies from when we actually had to go to the movies. I'm your host, Bill Groves, and this is episode four, Teeth of the Lion, in which I chat with my friend Stephen Bingen about his most recent book, The 50 MGM Films That Transformed Hollywood, and about studios in general. So, take a seat on the golf cart, and here we go. Once upon a time, in the place called California, there was an enchanted kingdom. It was said the streets were paved with gold, and it was inhabited by gods and goddesses, sorcerers and elves, wise men, jesters, and kings. For three decades, the kingdom flourished. It was loved, for it offered human multitudes a rare and precious gift, escape from the mortal coil into wondrous flights of fantasy. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us as I welcome my friend and former co-worker at Warner Brothers, Stephen Bingen. Steve, welcome to Movie Nights and Matinees. It's nice to have a chance to have a real-time conversation again after all these years. Uh, back at you, and same to you. And thinking back on when we first met, uh, we were both at Warner Brothers. That was my day job. I was doing television chronicles at the time, and you were working over in the, uh, in the tour department. Gosh, has it been that long? Yes, I was in the trenches at Warner Brothers for a long time. I first I started out giving tours and then ended up moving over to um, corporate archives, which was probably a better fit, at least as good a fit as you're going to get in corporate Hollywood. Yeah, and eventually I moved over there as well, and so we were coworkers uh, to a degree there. Of course, you were upstairs in the uh, the photo archive area, right? Or or working more with the research library, or I did a little bit. Of, I started out when I first moved over to the archival preservation end. I was a photo archivist and I did that for a few years and then moved to corporate archive. And then I ended up managing their um, the studio research library for the for the rest of the long haul. Uh, so I, I, I put on several different pairs of shoes which fit with varying degrees of accuracy. Yeah, and I was down in the, uh, the warehouse, uh, the more physical archive, or as I like to describe it to people, kind of like working in an enormous attic where all the stuff is stored. How long had you been with Warner Brothers? Well, this is probably unfair trying to nail down this timing, but before I first met you, when you were in the tour department, how, how long had you been with the studio at that point? Do you recall? I was probably, I didn't give a lot of tours, actually. Uh, I ended up administering the, the, the guy that was running the department had started it in the late 50s. And uh, he was completely flummoxed by having to um, book the tours on a computer and uh, and do anything that didn't involve a manual typewriter. Mm. And I didn't mind doing that sort of thing. So I ended up administering and, and booking the tours and scheduling the tours more than I actually ended up giving them. But the whole tenure over there was probably, I don't know, five or six years or something like that, which is probably way too long to be a tour guide. That's why I prefaced it by saying I kind of moved into administration. Although that said, I enjoyed taking people by the hand and showing them the place because I was completely insanely and I still am I, I hate to admit it but I still am obsessed with movie studios as physical tangible places 
I remember when I was a kid, I used to read books about movie studios. I drag a big book home from the library that said something like Warner Brothers Studios on it. And I think this is going to be great. And I'd thumb through it and there'd be one aerial photo of the physical lot of the studio and a quote by some movie star saying how wonderful it was. And then the rest of the book was just about the movies that the studio had made. And I've always felt like, this sounds odd, but I feel like as far as Hollywood is concerned, the factory is even more fascinating and insane and intriguing than the, the, the product that the factory makes. And I can't think of any other business where I, I feel that way. So when they told me to, you know, they threw me the keys to a golf cart and said, go out and show these people around for two hours. I felt like that was the best job in the world. So I, I, I enjoyed showing people the studio and trying to impart some of my passion onto, onto tourists. And usually the tourists didn't care, um, although they seemed to care more about the studio than the executives and the production, the people that were actually involved in, in the business of making Hollywood tick. Go figure that one out. Well, that uh, certainly ties into some of the other questions I wanted to ask you. But I mean, just from a... Uh logistical standpoint, maybe that's the wrong word, but so how did you evolve from studio employee to published studio historian? You know, there's a point where you start saying as much as I'm enjoying showing tourists from Toledo, the studio water tower, it wasn't that fulfilling. You kind of feel like, well, I need to grow up and do something else. That was when I started I started working in the um, in the studio research library, and I, sh I should probably explain a research library at a movie studio is like nothing else in the world. It doesn't have much to do with the product that the studio makes. It's all about finding visual cues for the movies that the studio is making. So if they were making a gangster movie that was set in 1930 Chicago, the production would go to you, the art department, usually to the research library and say, we need to see what the manhole covers in Chicago look like above, you know, in the streets in 1930, so we can build it on our set. So you go into these massive five drawer file cabinets, hundreds and hundreds of them with everything you can imagine, anything in the wealth and breadth of human knowledge stored inside these cabinets. So you could give them the factual details about what a manhole cover looked like in, in the 1930s or what sort of tax they used to put wanted posters on the wall in a Western in the sheriff's office or, um, you know, what sort of um, what sort of alligator was most likely to attack a person in, in, in Florida in 1935? And, you know, they you, they come up with all these crazy queries. And it was my job to go in and dig through the dust and find all this stuff and, pre and present it to them. But one of the things I had there was, I guess, for making movies that are set in Hollywood, they had a lot of photos of movie studios, like the, the exact sort of thing that the books that I read when I was a kid didn't have. So, you know, they had pictures of the back lots and the sets and the stages and the prop houses and the costume bins and the art department and the research libraries in those studios in previous decades. And most of them were for not for Warner Brothers, they were for MGM because MGM went through the buyout with Ted Turner had given up their research library and it eventually migrated and kind of been integrated into the Warner Brothers research library. It was just enormous. Yeah, you probably remember those huge files of, of materials going as far as the eye could see. Yeah, at the back of the warehouse, I there were all those file cabinets with the MGM continuity scripts and stuff. Yeah, and they I, had I remember, yeah, weird stuff like that that just had, for some reason had been saved. Yeah, I remember at one point going in there and, and looking up the cameraman just basically to make sure I was correct in 
thinking, okay, I looked at the cameraman listing on IMDb. They've got Buster Keaton's character as Jimmy Shannon or something like, like that. And I'm saying, where did that come from? That's not in the movie. And so, I thought, well, okay, maybe it's in, you know, some earlier draft. So I went and looked in the continuity file. No, there's nothing like that. So I have a feeling it was some sort of speculative publicity and somehow it stuck. But yeah, I remember all those file cabinets back there. They were fascinating and intriguing and romantic, I thought. And nobody else was doing anything with this because, you know, slowly we were going into the transition where the art department would just, you know, look it up on the Internet. And so, the, you know, the business was slowly becoming obsolete, even as I was working there. I was probably the last person that really took an interest in that collection and tried to make it into a viable enterprise. But it was another problem with the research library was more and more product was going out of state. And so the art department sometimes wasn't on the lot. They weren't in California. So how do you get them? How do you get them this material? Because for many years, the way that the art department or the costumers would research, they come down to the research library on the lot and they dig around and look at the stuff they liked and, you know, they'd be copied or photographed for them. That got physically harder and harder when you're competing with the internet and with runaway production. So I could tell it was a dying, fascinating business, but it was, you know, I, I knew it was going the way of the dodo bird, even while I was trying to hang on to it myself. But my book came out of finding these photos of MGM Studios. They didn't have very much on Warner Brothers, but there was all hundreds and hundreds of photos of, of, of MGM as it looked in the 30s and 40s and 50s, probably for movies that they were researching that were set in a movie studio. Now, was that your, your first book, which I guess you, you co-wrote with a couple of other people, the uh, MGM Hollywood's Greatest Backlot? Is that the one you're referring to? Yeah, I, I, I got a couple of friends who were you, as, as crazy as, about backlots of movie studios as I was. And because I never did find a book that was about, you know, an actual movie studio, we thought, well, we've got these photos. If we can get a licensing agreement from Warner Brothers, surely somebody's going to want to publish this. But nobody did. Literally nobody was interested. It took us 10 years, 10 years from the time I found these photos in the research library to the time that the book actually came out. I, I kept going to publishers and I'd tell them what I wanted to do. And they'd say, but this has never been done. And I'd say, exactly. And they'd say, but what you're trying to do, it, it looks like you're trying to write a guidebook to a place that isn't there anymore. How do you convince a publisher to write, let you write a guidebook about a place that people can't actually visit? Because the MGM backlog was long gone by then. But yeah. that's what made it fascinating. You know, for me, it was like Shangri-La or Camelot or something like that. It was this mythical kingdom that you couldn't physically explore. You know, I could walk out to the Warner Brothers backlog anytime I wanted to. It was still intact. Its ghosts were still there. And, you know, I, so I spent weekends for and lunch hours for years crawling around in the catacombs of Warner Brothers and the dust and the, the vaults underneath the stages and the, the, the secret passageways and the, 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 the flats nailed on top of flats on the back lot. And that was that was wonderful. But you couldn't do that for MGM. So in some ways, it was even more romantic for me. So yeah. we finally found a publisher. But like I said, it took the better part of a decade to find someone who thought it was a, a viable subject for a book. Yeah, and then well, and then your next book was Warner Brothers Hollywood's Ultimate Backlot. So, was that a little bit of a you know a payoff? You know, you guys uh, like grant me these licenses, and I'll I'll write you up for my next one. No, they could care less. They were completely <laughs> disinterested in the whole thing. In fact, I would I left the studio. Uh, I, I was working. I wasn't even there anymore when the book finally came out, and they, they weren't interested. I mean, they're interested in the fact that they sell it in the studio store, which I think is really nice. And I think the employees in the current iteration of the tour department 
uh, read it and use it for research. You know, I think it's fascinating that way. But, you know, movie studios are huge, massive machines with thousands of cogs operating. And they're much more interested in, you know, what the next movie that's going to come out this weekend, whatever platform it actually is released on, how much money that's going to make than they are in somebody writing a book about their history. Yeah. One of the things I found out, and I, I bet you'll agree with me, is that a lot of people that work at movie studios and positions of power aren't actually interested in movies. You know, they could care less about the stuff that we obsess over. They're, you know, they're just they're interested in parking on the lot and the, the dates with famous actresses that it's going to get them. The, the actual movies themselves are a product that they could care less about, which it says a lot about the movies that get made. Well, I had a similar experience when I was working in video stores and for a time kind of had this dream of having my own that was going to be like the best video store anybody's ever seen. But the the management types that I worked for and encountered and it's like, okay, these guys, they just want to be on the bandwagon. They don't necessarily want to drive it. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I'm, I'm sure you found the same thing out at Warner Bros. I kind of thought everyone was going to be like you and I before I came out to Hollywood. I thought that we'd all be fascinated in, in, in this wonderful, crazy, insane, fascinating business. And most people aren't. And mo- especially most people that are in power aren't, you know, and, you know, yeah. they didn't. Uh, most of them, to their credit, they're not movie people. They're businessmen. They're accountants or they're lawyers or they're they're good at negotiating or cutting deals. But, you know, the product themselves is just that. It's just product. They could be making sausages in a factory in Germany, and it, it, their job would be about the same as it is, you know, making movies in Hollywood. Yeah. Well, I think you sort of answered this question, at least to some extent. Um, but having worked at Warner Brothers how is it that MGM holds such fascination for you? Is that what you were saying about the, just the fact that it's not there anymore? And so it's kind of a romantic Shangri-La type place. I certainly did romanticize it on that level. But honestly, I, it's the idea of a movie studio in general, a movie studio with a back lot and all the, where all the cliches come to life, where you can go walk to the commissary and see a guy dressed as an Indian having lunch with a guy dressed as a, um, as a cowboy and walking around the sets and seeing the two by fours holding them up, all that I find very romantic. And yeah. it wasn't MGM in particular. It really wasn't. I mean, I certainly found it fascinating. And I certainly, I, I still do. I'm still obsessed with the place, I suppose. But I don't think I'm quite as obsessed with the place as a lot of other people are that, that hopefully we're going to read my books. Uh, like I said, the first book came out of having access to those photographs. And that book did really well. Because, like I said, it was the first book anyone had ever made about a movie studio. It was a physical place. So because it was kind of unique, it sold out. It went into, like, five printings. And it was the the only one of my books I've had that was reviewed in all the major publications, you know, all the big newspapers. And I was was interviewed on television over it and everything. And it, it was a really successful book. And I think the publisher probably thought, well, it probably has something to do with the fact that it is about MGM. MGM just kind of is this Hollywood pyramid you know even 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 thousands of years of sand blowing against that pyramid can't really dim it it's still it's it's still kind of um more iconic for some reason than other studios are i think that's why my ngm writing has been so successful it's funny i in one of the books i published this year i remember i in my research i found that ngm themselves did a study about their name and it turned out it was the 
most recognized name in the entire entertainment industry and one of the three or four most recognized names in the world among any businesses. Hmm. And yet MGM, I think last year, their market share was like 2% of the the entertainment industry, only 2% were were made up of MGM movies. By contrast, Disney is like 20%. And yet when you ask people what they thought of when they thought about a movie studio, they would invariably say MGM. I think it was I think it was 35% or something chose MGM first. And Disney was like number six or number seven of the names they'd come up with. Hmm. So there's something about the name that still kind of stands tall. And that's why I ended up publishing more about MGM. It wasn't, I won't say it wasn't a passion for the company itself. I obviously have that passion, but you know, I'm just, I've written books about Paramount and I've written books about Warner Brothers and I've written books about the Culver Studios and I find them all fascinating. I had two books come out this year because I wrote them over COVID and I got a contract to write one book about MGM because the publisher was like, we need something else about MGM from you. But I overwrote, I ended up with mm. too much text. So I asked the book, if, I asked the publisher if you'd let me split it in half. So I've got, I got two books out of one and two royalty checks out of one, out of one for that one. Well, that's funny. You should uh, uh, tell me that because in just in looking at, now I only have the one book. I only have the, the most recent, the 50 MGM films that transformed Hollywood. I haven't gotten my hands on the MGM effect, uh, how a Hollywood studio changed the world, but thematically, obviously, they sound very similar. And the analogy that came to mind was, okay, Rubber Soul and Revolver. You know, they're two separate Beatles albums, but because of the time that they were recorded uh, and released, uh, and where they where the Beatles were stylistically and, and so forth, uh, they are almost like, two parts of a double album that just were released separately. Yeah, I guess you could call my two books a concept album here. No, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I'm, um, I originally didn't want to go back to MGM because I I honestly, I felt like I've been there and I've done that. I've crawled over that fence and I've explored that studio and I didn't, I wasn't really interested in going back and listening to the lion roar again, but the publisher was so intent on getting another book with my name on it and with the name of MGM Studios on it, that I finally convinced myself that I could do it by just taking a different tact. I decided that, like, since I looked at the studio from the inside out, I sh- it might be interesting to look at it from the outside in. So the two books collectively, and don't feel like you need to read them both. You can read them in any order you want or just read one and not read the other. It doesn't matter. But collectively, if they're about anything, it's about... MGM and in a greater sense, Hollywood's pop culture effect on the world and how a movie studio can affect all of our lives in a very personal, very tangible way. So I talked to a lot of people that were much more obsessed with MGM as a studio than I am, you know, that have uh, basically based their lives around around that company, even though they've, they've, they've never physically worked in Hollywood. They just are are so in love with hearing that lion roar that it's kind of affected mm-hmm. their lives in all kinds of ways. So I talked to people like that and I dealt with MGM's effect in popular culture, the kind of ripple effect it had through Hollywood and through other studios. I've got a whole chapter of just about actors that have played Louis B. Mayer in, in mm-hmm. movies that were set at MGM or tension, you know, in one way or another were about MGM and how they looked at the studio and how, how that made the studio look at, at itself and at other studios as well. My second book and my third book is kind of a casting the net a lot wider. It's kind of it's kind of truly is about how a Hollywood studio can change the world and how it can change us, meaning you and I and the regular people on the street. Yeah. So then 
in terms of the selecting the 50 MGM films for the, the second book, once you'd established that criteria, what was your process for identifying the films that you were going to include? Because it's not like you can go on IMDb and do a, you know, the detailed search window and, and click the box that says uh, transformational, you know? So, uh, <laughs> you know, how, how do you get in and, and root those out? Yeah, you're, I feel like a soldier that's suffering post-traumatic stress. Yeah, when you when you bring this up to me, it makes me think about it, about how much hair pulling there was involved in trying to weed a library that massive down to 50 movies. Mm-hmm. And I made it harder on myself than I needed to as well, because I, I felt like MGM's movies, you know, it doesn't just include the things that were made in their Culver City studio and that they released, or the movies that were made by Mayer or made by Thalbert. It's, it's everything they've ever had their hands on, which includes... Right the James Bond franchise and the Rocky films and yeah. various United artists titles and, you know, movies that uh, some experts that know more about this than I will say, well, that's not really an MGM movie. They just released it or something, but I, I feel like anything they ever distributed or co-financed or foreclosed upon is fair game. So that made it even harder. So I ended up with thousands of titles and I spent weeks and weeks chewing on pencils and, and running my hands through my hair, trying to figure out, which ones were significant. I, I, I kind of felt like they should be the movies that not necessarily the obvious movies, but just the ones that changed the company and somehow by reflection also changed its audience, which is um, just vague enough to make it even harder. So I, I finally got down to about 150 or something like that. And um, I said, well, I'll weed it down to 50. I'll include another 50 with um, a kind of reduced commentary, just a, a couple paragraphs, just so the people, after they finish my book, if they went into a deep dive into the studio, there's 50 more titles. And the last 50, I just listed in an appendix and said, well, go to town. If you want, if you want to see even more, you should take a look at these. Yeah. Yeah. There are, uh, well, of course, as you say, the, there are a number of them that, you know, really any movie buff is going to immediately recognize as significant and probably you know, to an extent why it was significant as well. Uh, you've got some in there that might be a little bit unexpected. I mean, for one thing, in looking over the book's content, it's evident why the title uses the word films instead of movies. I think it's safe to say that the word movie is associated with something that's feature length and that had a theatrical release, at least in terms of the span of time the book covers. But in addition to your scope being broad enough to include titles that MGM didn't produce, but rather acquired after the fact or maybe distributed, you also colored outside the lines a bit in terms of what would be called movies. For instance, there are a couple of shorts in there, um, Putting Pants on Philip, the first two-reeler in which Laurel and Hardy were officially designated as a team, even though they didn't have their trademark bowlers and suits and so forth. And similarly, you have Puss Gets the Boot, the cartoon that marks the first appearance of the animated cat and mouse, who we'd eventually come to know as Tom and Jerry. There's also the original TV special, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. And they're hanging their stockings, snarled for the sneer. Tomorrow is Christmas. It's practically here. Then he growled with his Grinch fingers, nervously drumming. I must find some way to keep Christmas from coming. And in addition, there's the hour-long TV documentary, Hollywood, The Dream Factory, which was kind of a precursor to That's Entertainment, which has its own chapter in the book. 
It was, in its time, the greatest theatrical enterprise the world has ever known. A massive assembly line for production of dreams and profits. Hollywood did not invent the movies, but it polished and perfected the art of making them and the business of selling them to an audience of millions. Within the dream factory's guarded walls were created all forms of adventure and delight. It was a place of ultimate illusion where any scene the human mind could conceive could be brought to life on film. And the TV movie Phantom of Hollywood, which was kind of the dramatic underbelly of Hollywood, the dream factory. I guess, arguably, the most unusual selection would be the fact that you included a TV series, The Man from Uncle, in the book, uh, even though there were several theatrical features created from some of the episodes. Announcing an MGM adventure spectacular, two big screen feature length action packed Man from Uncle movies. Thrill feature number one The Spy with My Face. You wouldn't put a bullet through your own head, would you? Starring Robert Vaughn as secret agent Napoleon Solo. David McCollum as Ilya Kuryakin. And lovely Cinta Berger. Plus thrill feature number two, To Trap a Spy. Starring Robert Vaughn in a second top adventure film as secret agent Solo. And David McCollum as Ilya Kuryakin. Patricia Crowley, Luciana Pelucci. This may well be the most exciting program you will ever see on any screen. See both these features from the famed Man from Uncle series, The Spy with My Face, plus To Trap a Spy in color. But one thing that struck me too is just when I started reading, because this was the first, this is the first book of yours that I've read. I've I've seen that you had a number. You're becoming quite the prolific uh, author here. But in reading it, I mean, the tone of the book. I mean, just it's articulate and insightful without coming across as pompous or highbrow and here i am thinking okay well, this is this is a guy that i used to have just conversations with. he's a regular guy we were just you know a couple of movie geeks sitting around talking about movies or whatever and here it's like i'm reading a a, a professor's work or something i'm enjoying it and i'm learning things and it's it's very well written and crafted it, it's like you've got a secret identity <laughs> well, I appreciate your, uh, I, I think you're giving me more credit than I probably deserve, Bill, because we're friends. But uh, um, it's interesting you said that I used the word film in the title instead of um, movie. And you're right. You're, that's, that absolutely does justify my being able to include some of these odd, these MGM oddities, as, you, as I might think of them. But that was completely an editorial choice on the part of the publisher. I don't think I had anything to do with it. But you're welcome to give me the credit for that if you like, because when, oh, you, sure, point that, when you point that out to me, I, I certainly agree with you. And, you know, I, I feel like especially because the majority of the MGM title is kind of covered with the patina of nostalgia for a lot of people now. Mm -hmm. We People tend to fawn, especially people that truly are um, passionate about the company, about their library. And so it's very easy to start looking at these things as being better cinematically than um, they actually are. And they sometimes get more, some of these movies get more credit than they deserve because they were important in the studio's history. But, you know, I, I kind of, I'm hoping that it's not just those people that look at these movies in that way that are going to find this book interesting. I, I did a, like a 30 second TV interview with a couple of um, 
television show morning hosts and you know how chipper and friendly and happy they have to be yeah and before i went on the girl who the the the, the pretty anchor woman said i've just been thumbing through your book during the commercial i don't think i've seen any of these movies <laughs> and you know i thought in some ways you're the ideal audience because i'm going to get the people that you know like you and i anyway but the, if i can get someone like her to pick up the book and thumb through it even if it's just for 90 seconds while she waits for the camera to turn back on again you know maybe maybe she'll seek out some of these movies because you know they're all interesting for one way or another sometimes it's not the reason the way that people think that they're interesting and the way that people find these movies so beloved but they're they're all worth seeking out and they're all worth checking out and I feel like if you're going to be too academic, then you're, you're going to lose a big share of your audience. You're just going to get the people that are going to read it anyway. Yeah, well, and even people who are dedicated movie buffs. The nice thing about the overview of, of film the book contains is that it presumably will have appeal to people who are fans of any genre. I mean, there'll be some good stuff in there for them, as well as material that might broaden their horizons. Fans of musicals can enjoy reading about meet me in St. Louis or on the town and then turn the page in one direction or another and read about Todd Browning's freaks. Go away, all of you. Don't you know trespassing the same as stealing? Oh, I'm sorry, monsieur. I am Madame Petralini. These uh, children are in my circus. Children? They're monsters. Oh, your circus. I understand. So you see, monsieur, when I get a chance, I like to take them into the sunshine and let them play like children. That is what most of them are. Or Forbidden Planet. Welcome to Altair 4, gentlemen. I am to transport you to the residence. For your convenience, I am monitored to respond to the name Robbie. Or the Red Badge of Courage. Jim. Yeah? How do you think the regiment will do? Oh, they'll fight all right once they get into it. We'll be on them like wildcats. They won't know what hit them. Think any of the boys will run? There may be a few of them run, but there's them kind in every regiment. Especially when they first goes under fire. Or the postman always rings twice. There's one thing we could do that would fix everything for us. What? Pray for something to happen to Nick? Something like that. Car. Well, you suggested it yourself once, didn't you? I was only joking. Were you? Yes, I was. Or had you started to think about it a little? Maybe I said it, but I didn't really mean it. Well, I say it again now, and I do mean it. Or North by Northwest. I'm an advertising man, not a red herring. I've got a job, a secretary, a mother, two ex-wives, and several bartenders dependent upon me. And I don't intend to disappoint them all by getting myself slightly killed. Or the Dirty Dozen. You've all volunteered for a mission which gives you just three ways to go. Either you can follow up in training and be shipped back here for immediate execution of sentence, or you can follow up in combat, in which case I will personally blow your brains out, or you can do as you're told, in which case you might just get by. Or shaft. I get 50 bucks an hour, plus expenses, and no questions asked about how I spend it. You got it. I get a free hand to move any way I want. You're fine, my baby. I, I could go on and on, obviously. Um, there's just all the variety anyone could want. And whether it's the most well-known films or ones that have to some extent flown under the radar where film criticism is concerned, you look at aspects of them that aren't usually analyzed in making of books and articles. 
and when there's one there early on um, that I I don't think I'd ever heard of until I got your book, the White Shadows in the South Seas. Now I checked, and it's you can stream it online, uh, so it is available to see. But that was one I was completely unfamiliar with. But yeah, there's a lot of surprises. Uh, I mean, you got Jailhouse Rock, uh, you got both versions of Ben Hur, which I thought was cool because I I'm in the camp that I actually like the silent version better. I think. And as you mentioned, Dr. No is in there, you know, 2001, Heaven's Gate. That's always fun to talk about. I think in a book like this, someone, you know, especially the people who, like I said, are going to read it anyway, and God bless them. I, I love all of you. But, you know, because of those people, you have to write about The Wizard of Oz, and you have to write about Gone with the Wind, and mm-hmm. you have to write about Singing in the Rain. Right. So many people have covered that ground before, and not to take anything away from those movies, but there's not a lot that you can really add to the collected knowledge that we have about those films. No, I don't go to the movies much. If you've seen one, you've seen them all. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. But, you know, some of these more obscure titles were almost more fun. And, I, you know, I, I was almost more passionate about those because you want people to seek these things out. That's how we keep these movies alive. And that's how we keep this library alive. So, you know, I, even even movies I kind of am a little bit dismissive of, I, in some ways, you, you know, those movies are, are almost more interesting just because they are flawed, uh, you know, and that they still they still had some sort of an effect on, on audiences and on the studio and they still can. You know, that's what's interesting about that library is it's still alive. It's still vivid. That's what makes movies interesting and more more so than, you know, almost any other art or any other media is the fact that, you know, you can go back and you can watch these films and you can experience them, you know, with a little imagination, the same way that people experienced them in the 1920s or the 1950s. And, you know, that's fun. It's, it's exciting for all kinds of ways that, the you know, the people who made the movies never intended. Thank God for film. It can capture a performance and hold it right there forever. And if anyone says to you, who was he or who was she or what made them so good? I think a piece of film answers that question better than any words I know of. Well, as you uh, dug in here, did you encounter any surprises, uh, either in terms of information about movies that have been well covered, but you discovered something you hadn't learned or in terms of discovering a movie that you weren't that familiar with? And, you know, it just was something fresh and new for you. You know, I always I had a really hard time trying to figure out how to end the book, like what's going to be number 50 in the book. And what I finally came up with was Get Shorty. And I'm not saying that the studio hasn't made interesting movies since Get Shorty, which is what is more than 20 years old now. But, you know, that's a movie that probably people will remember with some fondness. But I don't think anyone would say it's one of the great cinematic achievements of all time or anything like that. But, you know, it surprised me how meta that movie was before the term meta was was coined, because at the time that movie was being made, the studio had been bought by an Italian gangster. It was literally owned by the mafia. who Ted Turner apparently, you know, agreed to sell it to these gangsters. And they they basically treated the studio as a slot machine. They thought it would be an entry into Hollywood for this. And they could they could basically take over the entertainment industry through their ownership of MGM. And what do you know? That's what the movie's about. It's about a, it's about an Italian gangster that comes to Hollywood and tries to run the place. It says here you're getting Martin Weir for the part of Love Joy. That's right. We're getting Martin. Come on. How are you going to do that? I'm going to take a gun. I'm going to put it to his head. And I'm going to say, sign the papers, Martin, or you're dead. That's it. I wonder, would that work? 
And I found that to be really fascinating. I don't know if anyone else has ever really made that connection before. It's also interesting, the last scene in that movie has John Travolta and um, Gene Hackman and Rene Russo going into a soundstage and the camera pulls back. And sure enough, the lot that they filmed that scene on was their own studio, which they didn't own anymore. They'd sold it a few years earlier to Sony Pictures, but yet they went back and filmed these scenes, the climax of the movie on their old stomping grounds. You know, they could have shot those scenes anywhere. They could have shot them in any studio. They could have shot them in Canada. The audience wouldn't have known the difference, but they wanted to show you these these gangsters in a Hollywood studio, and they chose their own former studio to shoot film to film those scenes in. I thought that was kind of interesting and kind of romantic. And you know, if you talk, if you talk to the production people, they probably said, "Well, this is the cheapest one to rent or something." But I like to think they did it out of a sense of nostalgia, and I'm going to appreciate it on in that way, no matter what they tell me. Yeah. You've said that these movies are really pretty much all worth seeking out for one reason or another. Are there any that are especially close to your heart that you really would encourage people to see, particularly ones that are among the the less obvious, you know, the not singing in the rain, the not gone with the wind, the not Wizard of Oz, you know? Um, you know, there's some, there's some really in, interesting, unexpected jewels that you can find if you look hard enough. The first big budget movie a Hollywood studio ever made with an all uh, African-American cast was called Hallelujah. And it was directed by the great white director, King Vidor. And I've never seen that. I've been hearing about that movie for years. But if you actually seek it out, it's a fascinating look at the state of race relations in the first quarter of the 20th century. And that's, once again, not something that the, the makers intended. You know, it's interesting that the movie did not, like you would assume they would, since it was it was it had an all black cast. They didn't present white people as being the villains. It seemed to exist. The movie seems to exist in this Dixieland world where there doesn't seem to be any white people. The good guys and the bad guys are all African Americans. Can't you see that I'm still sinning? Hush up, oh please! Oh, you ain't oh, never gonna quit sinning, gal. Oh, it's right down your blood. Oh Lord, give me strength. I I remember thinking that was really fascinating because they didn't use the obvious villains and the obvious heroes and they didn't bring out the usual tropes about race that, you know, that that an integrated cast might bring out. So I remember thinking, you know, this is in some ways it's more progressive than a lot of movies that they're making right now. And, you know, a movie like that, it gets the credit for being the first movie with a, with a black cast. And it certainly deserves a footnote in movie history for that. But once again, it's one of these movies where if you actually go and watch it, you find more that are going on kind of rippling under the surface than you would have expected from that footnote that it gets in in film history. Yeah, that's on my still need to see list. Uh, I think there were about a dozen in there that that I still need to see. Still did better than that anchor woman that I interviewed. (laughs) That sounds like it, yeah. Are there any that you would just as soon not have needed to write about in the uh, on the list? I, I was a little, I have to say, I was a little bit bored by Song of Russia. I really need, I, that, that's an important movie because almost everybody that was involved in it was blacklisted after the fact. What happened is the State Department went to Louis B. Mayer and asked him to make a movie during World War II glorifying our Russian allies. And Mayer, as the patriot, went out and did so. And apparently he did too good a job because after the war was over, when we decided that the Russians weren't really our friends, uh, this movie was like a horrible birthmark that just wouldn't go away. All the writers were blacklisted and um, 
the studio mayor had to testify before the House Un-American Committee and kind of embarrassed himself. The truth is, the movie can embarrass itself even without the political context. It's just, it's just very formulaic, and it, um, you completely know where they're going like half an hour before they get there. Robert Taylor is the lead, and he plays an, an American who's um, who's um, in Russia to um, apparently give classical music to the Russians. Apparently, before the Americans came over to conduct classical music, they didn't have music in Russia. So, <laughs> and, you know, so like I said, it's just it's it's kind of what a lot of people kind of assume old movies are going to be about. It has beautiful people, but they're, they're not saying anything very interesting and not, they're not doing anything very interesting. So it's only the, in this case, the context is much more interesting than, than the movie itself. If we were in America and I were asked to describe you, I'd say, what a girl. It would be very nice to hear, even in Moscow. I can ride, I can shoot, and with the men going up, women will have to do more. My place is at home. Does that mean you shouldn't see it? No, it's still worth a watch. But, um, you know, you might want to take some, brew a pot of coffee before you put it and start watching it. <laughs> Along the same lines, I recently read Alan Rhodes' biography of director Michael Curtiz, and it talked about Mission to Moscow, which he made for Warner Brothers, which had the same type of origin, the State Department wanting a movie made that painted our Soviet allies in a favorable light. Uh, similarly, a number of people associated with that took heat for it later, although Curtiz himself seemed to have been relatively unscathed. Yeah, and that's, that's among the ones I haven't seen. So, you know, I'd put that one close to the bottom of your list. But <laughs> Earlier, you also mentioned the, the, the thrill that some people get um, from the MGM lion. And that ties into what I shared in the last episode as being part of my most memorable movie-going experience, which was when Debbie and I went to see another entry in your book, How the West Was Won, in full Cinerama at the Cinerama Dome in Hollywood back in uh, 2003. And just I was there, too. Maybe we were, we were there the same night. Oh, could be. Well, it was unforgettable, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, you know, that the curtains opening on that huge screen, the MGM line, and that score, that music kicking in, that was just... Uh, that was yeah, really, really something. I was very happy to throw some praise at that movie. I think it, I think it deserves it. Probably because I was there the same night you were. Apparently, when we both got to see it in actual three strip cinerama, there's not really nothing else quite like it. Yeah, yeah, that was very cool. So, what you alluded to this a little bit earlier, but the current status of MGM as a corporate entity. Uh, can you kind of give us a picture of what it's like now and maybe what the future holds for them? Is it uh, negligible? You know, I, I think MGM and I think that line is probably completely unkillable at this point. I don't think it matters uh, really who owns the company. It's going to continue to exist in one form or another. Uh, last year, it was purchased by Amazon. And I thought that was probably a good thing because remember a few years ago, 20th Century Fox was purchased by Disney. Right. And when one movie studio buys another, it's a bloodbath because there's thousands of positions and jobs that are duplicated. So most of the Fox people ended up getting the axe. And it was, so it was sad on a personal level. But I also thought it was really sad because 20th Century Fox has its own unique and fascinating and glamorous history. I'd love to have been able to write a book about them someday. But, you know, when Disney bought them, all of a sudden it's just basically a a production entity within the, you know, that, that works for Mickey Mouse. 
And when Amazon decided to buy MGM, I thought, well, this is good because they, you know, they they were dabbling in filmmaking through their so-called Amazon Studios. But through buying MGM, that would give them kind of what the Italian mafia wanted when they when they bought MGM earlier. It would give them an entree into Hollywood and kind of a, a you know a nice table at Spago's. And it would give them that library and it would give them that logo. I also thought it was kind of ironic because Amazon before that had purchased, or I guess it was actually a long-term lease, the Culver Studios lot over in Culver City, which is just a couple blocks from the old MGM lot. So I thought, well, that would be nice if they buy MGM because they can move MGM back to Culver City where they began. But the romantic in me thought that that would be a really good idea. It's a little early to tell, but I don't think most of those things that I thought would be so nice is going to happen. I know people who work for the studio and at the studio, and you know that Amazon is throwing its weight around. They, they all of a sudden everybody in Amazon thinks that they're a movie producer. They all want to be Louis B. Mayer. Mm-hmm. So there, there's there's a there's what you would expect when one company buys another. There's a lot of interference and there's a lot of um, corporate nonsense going on over there. But I suspect when the dust settles even if they don't actually move the MGM logo over to Culver City, MGM will survive for the foreseeable future, even if it's just to produce James Bond movies and and Rocky films, just because they do have several successful franchises. And for heaven's sakes, they do have that roaring lion. Yeah, only now it'll be Leo and underneath uh, an Amazon company for a while. Yes, I'm sure that will happen, yeah. So what future books do you uh, have in the works at, at the moment? Well, because I'm, um, I have to hustle to keep working. Uh, I always have to have at least one or two books on the fire. Uh, I released two last year, the, the two MGM books. I'll probably never be able to release two books in the same year again, so that would probably be a career highlight for me. But I've got a book going on. I'm collaborating on a book with Mark Wanamaker, who runs the Bison Archives. And he's got an amazing collection. He's helped me with finding photographs and documents for all my books. And he's got an amazing personal collection of thousands and thousands of photos and documents and records about all the studios. And I always thought, you know, your story would be really interesting, Mark. I'd like to hear how you got all this stuff and what you do with it and how, you know, how exactly that works. And he said, yeah, I'd like to tell it to you. So we're collaborating on a book about that. So it doesn't have a title yet, but look for it in bookstores probably next year or something like that. Man of a Thousand Photos? Yeah, The Man of a Thousand Photos. So I think I think that would be kind of interesting. It will kind of get me away from um, movie studio and movie studio backlots for a little while. I had a friend right after my second MGM book came out last year who called me up and said, you know, I just finished your second book and I love it and we need to collaborate on a book about the MGM auction. And, you know, I think that would be really interesting because it's another one of those watershed moments in Hollywood history. You know, up until that point, movie props and costumes didn't have any value. They were interesting, but they weren't intrinsically valuable. But in 1970, MGM started selling off their heirlooms and um, they didn't make a fortune. The auction company did. But that was the first time that people realized how much personal interest people had in props and, and costumes and things that they'd seen in their favorite film. How much do I hear for the shoes started out? Somebody, what were you getting? There they are. $1,000, two. $2,000, I'm bid the shoes, three. $3,000, I'm bid the shoes, make it four. $4,000, $5,000, bid six. $6,000, I'm bid the shoes, now make it seven. $7,000, $10,000, bid the shoes, now make it eleven. Eleven thousand dollars a bid, now twelve. Fifteen thousand dollars a bid, we make it twenty. Fifteen thousand dollars, I'm bid once. Fifteen thousand. I bid twice. Fifteen thousand dollars. I bid third and last call. Are you all through? Fair warning. 
And they are sold. The bidder's number, please. In 1970, it was amazing. That, I mean, people were astonished that the ruby slippers from The Wizard of Oz could sell for, get this, $15,000. One ruby is probably worth that much on the ruby slippers today. And what makes it interesting is that they were not even real rubies. Right. And so there was a lot of speculation in the press at the time about about how people were um, taking these props and costumes and making it personal. It, it meant something to their lives. And that was the first time that had ever happened. My friend wanted to write a book about the auction, and I, I think it's interesting. I, I think it'd be a fascinating book for someone to write, but I just don't know if I can um, if I can go back and work for the lion one more time. And I don't really want to be just that MGM guy either, because like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated in the entire industry, and I'm fascinated in the other six major studios as well. Yeah, I was going to say, you haven't touched Universal yet. so uh, I'd love to do Universal. I'm, they're just very litigious. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't think, I, I think their lawyers are probably better than mine. Oh, and wow. they don't seem to be interested in doing a book about, about their, their studio and about their, their sets and the, 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 their back lot and, you know, the, the history of the place itself, which is the sort of thing I like to write. And yeah. they just, you know, I think they feel like if we're going to do that, we're going to do it ourselves. So, no, I probably won't be able to test Universal. Although I'd certainly like to. Most of the time, you have a publisher lined up, or as you, as you spoke about, they they wanted you to write the the MGM book and turn it into books. Are there any topics that you're eager to tackle if you can find a willing publisher, but they're not necessarily lining up for it? You tend to become typecast, just like if you were an actor. People now say he's the guy that writes about movie studio backlots, mm-hmm. and so I've tried to get away from that, but you can't get very far away from it. A publisher went to me a couple of years ago and said, you know, it's the 50th anniversary of the movie Easy Rider. Would you like to write a book about it? And I thought that'd be great. I don't have to talk about backlots. I can get out on the open road. The trouble was the book had to come out by the end of that 50th year. So I, I, was, I was working under a deadline. It had to come out by the end of um, 2019 or else it'd be the 51st anniversary version. And that doesn't have much of a ring to it. So I had to write the whole book in about five months or something like that. And it was a wonderful experience. But most of my readers aren't interested in that. You know, that's an, a generation that they're, they're not interested in. And, and I don't mean this as an, as an ageism thing. There's people that are 20 or 30 years old who love classic MGM movies. They do exist, but they could care less about, you know, two hippies riding motorcycles in the 1960s. So my audience didn't carry over for that book, which was a real shame. But you go too far outside of your, you know, the box that they put you in and you lose your audience and you lose interest on the same part of publishers. So yeah. I'll probably be in the saddle writing about movie studio backlots for the rest of my life. I'll probably be writing the monogram backlot story or something but like, <laughs> in the next 10 years or something. Well, there are still you know, a few others, RKO, Republic. Uh, I kind of covered RKO in um, you know, my book about the Culver Studios because they own the 40-acre the, the backlot over there for years. So I got to, I got to throw some RKO stuff in there. Yeah. But, you know, the, one of my friends who collaborated with me on the MGM book wrote a book about, or actually it was two of my friends that collaborated on the MGM book, wrote a book about Fox. So that's been covered. And they're, they've basically been marginalized because of the Disney sale. And we've talked about Universal. So, you know, there's not too many more studios still on the shelf. Well, has anybody ever done a deep dive into PRC? Yeah, it could happen. They probably had six, <laughs> uh, they probably had a six foot back lot or something like that over there. Yeah. And I'm still interested in that. It's not, it, it's not like I've, um, I've exercised those demons. I still find 
walking around in a movie studio and, and, and you know being haunted by the ghosts that work there. One of the most fascinating things in the in the entire world. I still think it's very romantic. I remember reading The Last Tycoon, and there was a line where F. Scott Fitzgerald said that a Hollywood studio is like 40 acres of fairyland. And I thought that's so true. You know, one soundstage, uh, well, it looks pretty much like another. But a back lot, you know, out here where they shoot the exteriors, that seems to me that the back lot reflects the personality, the character of its studio. And this was the biggest, and I think perhaps the best back lot in all of Hollywood. And so I still feel those obsessions, even after, you know, exercising those demons repeatedly. But you know, at the same time, I'd like, to, I'd like to do something else. But I'm kind of typecast Hollywood books, which I'm okay with. But I'm also typecast more specifically with movies about, you know, the books about A, MGM, and B, movie studio back lots. And, you know, there's not, I don't know, I think I've said most of what I can say by this point. Yeah, are there any uh, other specific movies that might attract you to write them up uh, as you did with Easy Rider? You know, Easy Rider was something that, like, a, a public, it was kind of nice have, having enough of a reputation where a publisher came to me. I probably never would have thought about doing that on my own, but because I didn't have a particular affiliation with that movie, I'd always admired it, but it, it wasn't a top 10 film for me or anything. I got to come in kind of cold and look at it from the outside, which is really nice. And with that book, I was able to kind of stand back and look at it with a little more perspective than I have when I'm writing about movie studio backlots. And I'd, I'd love to do something like that again. I've also thought it'd be fun to write uh, like a biography or something like that. I've always, I've always specifically tried not to talk about people because everybody talks about people. And I've always found that the sets that people are working on, yes, this is very strange. This is one of my, one of my eccentricities, is more interesting than those people. And I'm watching an old movie and there'll be these glamorous stars and I'll be like, can you just get out of the way? I'd like to see what set on the back lot you're working <laughs> on. <laughs> I'm probably one of the few people that looks at it that way. It makes me really, really hard for me to watch a movie with a friend because they're just saying, will you please shut up so we can watch the film? So I'd like to write, I'm thinking it'd be, it'd be a good way to get outside of my wheelhouse by writing a, um, a biography about somebody. I'm just not sure who it'd be. I tried to interest a publisher once in a biography of the famous, well, not so famous is the problem, um, British character actor, uh, Robert Newton. Don't ask how I got interested in him, but I always thought that would be an interesting book. Because Long John Silver. Great, yeah, Long John Silver, exactly. He had this great debaucherous life, and you know, he kind of set the, once again, he kind of set the public image of what we think about when we think about a pirate. All of the um, all the R's and shiver me tenders, timbers don't come from Robert Louis Stevenson or from history. They they come from Robert Newton's drunken rantings on the soundstage. <laughs> you are a smart one. <laughs> I might have known you could handle a firearm. So I always thought I thought he'd, he'd be an interesting character to write a book about. But you know, I don't think my audience would follow me over to something like that. And I don't think there's enough Robert Newton fanatics wandering around or limping around on a peg leg mm -hmm. to make a book like that particularly viable. And, you know, I, I don't want to sound mercenary, but this is how I make a significant amount of my living. So, I, you know, I, I, I don't want to write books that no one's going to read. That's true. Yeah. I, having created and published a magazine that, yeah, you know what I'm talking most, about. Most issues of which ended up in the shredder. Uh, yeah, I, I completely empathize. So, All right. Well, I uh, have probably used up about as much of your time as I should. I do come to what's kind of become now the standard closing question. And that is, what is your most memorable movie going experience? My most memorable movie going experience 
there's a little bit of a backstory to this. I'm going to have to tell it, I guess. I'll make it short. When I was in um, college, it was just kind of the last flowering of that era where they had repertory theaters, you know, little hole-in-the-wall theaters that would run classic films and foreign films and uh, cult movies and adult films on the weekend and things like that. And, you know, most of those theaters are gone now. But, you know, from the 1960s up until like the 1980s, when I, you know, when I was doing this, there, there was still a few of them out there. And there was one in the town I went to college in. And I fell in love with the place. I thought, this is amazing. I mean, most of these films I'd never seen, especially, you know, foreign films that never played on American television. And so I went into the manager one night and I said, I, can I have a job here? I'll, I'll work for free if you'll let me work in this theater, just because I love the place so much. And um, they didn't, I didn't end up working for free, but they didn't pay me very much. But they, uh, I ended up working as a, as a projectionist. And that was back in the day when, you know, the movie, you, you, you didn't download the movie from a satellite. It was, it was shipped to the theater on 35 millimeter reels. And you had to do changeovers from one projector to another five or six times during the course of the movie. So they really did need a man in the booth to keep the, the movie flickering on the screen. Well, one night they were running. I mean, it was like I said, it was a it was a, a legitimate theater. They ran 35 millimeter movies, but some films that they would book were only available in 16 millimeter. Uh, one of them was um, Mutiny on the Bounty, the 1935 version, an MGM movie, ironically enough. When you get a movie in 16 millimeter, you'd have to splice it all, the entire movie onto one huge reel. And so I went through and I spliced the whole movie together on one big reel. And then you mount this reel on a 16 millimeter projector inside the booth. And it had a big, powerful xenon bulb so you could project it across the auditorium. And I started the movie. And it wasn't like the 35 millimeter movies where you had to do changeovers. So I started watching the movie and I became fascinated by it. And, you know, maybe it, maybe it ties into my Robert Newton obsession, like seeing guys, you know, swashbuckling on the deck of a ship going around the world, I found really fascinating. So after a little while, I, I got tired of sitting up in the booth watching this movie. And I thought, it's just running this and there's nothing that's going to go wrong. So I went downstairs <laughs> and sat in the audience to watch it. And finally, we get to the climactic mutiny scene when Charles Lawton is being confronted by Clark Gable on the deck of the bounty. Mr. Christian, I give you your last chance to return to duty. I'll take my chance against the law. You'll take yours against the sea. But you're taking my ship. My ship? Your ship. The king's ship, you mean. And you're not fit to command it. End of the world. And then all of a sudden, the picture froze. And mid-mutiny, Clark Gable's face caught fire. Oh. And I ran upstairs. And what had happened is the as one, as, as one reel had, had um, downloaded the film through the projector and onto the take-up reel, apparently the weight had shifted a little bit on the, the projector. And so the, the reel that the film was coming out of moved up just far enough to, to touch the ceiling of the projection booth. And so the move, the reel couldn't turn, and so the movie got hot inside the inside the gate. That's where Clark Gable got incinerated like that. Oh wow! And so I I pulled the film out and I fixed it and I put it back up on the screen again. And five seconds later, the same thing again. The happened again. The 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 reel touched the ceiling and it stopped the movie from running. And this happened like thirty times over the course of the evening. Oh. When I look at it now, I probably could have found a way to just lower the projector a little bit, and the, the problem would have been over, and I could have watched the rest of the movie. But we never got through the movie. I kept fixing it, and then it would break again when the when the 
off-putting reel would touch the ceiling. And so pretty soon the audience was screaming. I thought there was going to be a mutiny in, in, in the <laughs> yeah. theater. I had to lock the projection booth and nobody got to see the last of the movie. I think I finally, mm-hmm. the last 10 minutes, I finally got the thing fixed where I could, I could at least keep it up from scratching against the ceiling and they could watch the end of the movie. But they missed the whole mutiny and they missed most of the scenes set in Tahiti. And there was film all over the floor. And, um, oh, wow. And they, the, the studio, which was probably, I think, was MGM, had the billets for all these, you know, we had hundreds of feet of film that had been torn or scratched or incinerated. Mm-hmm. So needless to say, when I think about going to the movies and when I think about memorable experiences, that's usually the one that comes to mind first. All well, that was a movie showing experience. Is there anything? Again, quite the same way, I'm sure. Yeah, is there is there anything uh, memorable as an audience member as opposed to the person uh, responsible for showing the movie? <laughs> well, that was the problem. See, I had I, I decided I wanted to be part of the audience as, as opposed to being a uh, as being being the guy in the projection booth, and that obviously got me into a whole lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. But you know, we all, like Jimmy Stewart told Peter Bogdanovich, we all take away these little pieces of time from you know from our favorite movies. You know, there's there's hundreds of experiences that you know where where it's these things have changed your life. You know, you think about, you know, how the first time you try to pick up a girl or the first time you try to impress a friend, the way you're going to handle yourself when they're, you know, when, when schoolyard bullies attack you in the playground or something like that. Most of that, even if we don't think about it consciously, comes from movies that we sat in the dark and watched. And it's really sad that the exhibition method that we use to show people movies, it seems to be shifting to where people are going to watch them at home. And I don't know if the effect's going to be quite as vivid and if we're going to remember it quite the same way. I mean, the very fact that you're asking me a question about an experience I had in a theater kind of proves how iconic and how memorable the experience of watching a movie in the theater really is. There's nothing else quite like it. And I, I, I hope the next generation gets to enjoy that just like we did. Except for Mutiny on the Bounty, that was a little bit <laughs> Well, and that's that's a perfect tie-in to the podcast because that's the uh, the philosophy uh, underlying it is movies from when we had to actually go to the movies. So, uh, thank you for uh, tying that in the way you did, and thank you for your time. And it's been great talking to you again in real time. Good luck with your upcoming book projects, and let me know, and uh, we can get together again this way in the future and plug another one. But in the meantime, uh, everyone who's listening, I hope you will check out Steve Bingen's various books. Uh, This most recent one, of course, is the one we've been focusing on, 50 MGM Films That Transformed Hollywood. But I dare say any of the others are going to be equally rewarding to uh, add to your library. So uh, check it out. And you can actually do that on the Movie Nights and Matinees website. There will be links for doing that very thing. So, Steve, thanks again. It was so nice catching up with you again, Bill. Let's let's do it again in 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> I love that optimism. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. And now, as Steve rides off into the proverbial sunset, I want to thank you listeners for joining us both for this episode and the others. I'm happy to inform you that episode three hit number 25 on the podcast rankings for film history, which from what I can tell is a pretty doggone impressive accomplishment. So thank you for that. And I hope you'll continue to listen in and spread the word. Don't forget to visit the movie nights and matinees website and Facebook page. Please leave some comments on either or both. And wherever you listen to the podcast, please remember to give a rating and review if possible. Now it's time for me to saddle up and mosey on over to preparations for the next episode, which, as you might guess, will have something of a Western tone. 
The subject will be what may arguably be considered the first hero team-up series of movies in the history of cinema. So, I'll expect to see you then. Over yonder, I guess. It's all over, boys. Let's hurry and get that herd to water before dark.